You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Morning, church. And not only baby dedication, but a Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if it gets any better than that. It's a good day. Let's just stop and say thank you, all the parents, all the babies. Thank you to all the pair volunteers. Such a good day. Good day. All right. So if you haven't been here before, welcome to Kingsway. If you're watching at home online, welcome to Kingsway. We are in week two of our series in Exodus. And before I can actually get into the text of Exodus, I need you to think of this first part kind of like an Oreo. Which part of the Oreo is the best part? The middle, right? If somebody said the cookie, we need to talk. Well, one of, my, one of my sons will actually like take apart the cookie, pull out the middle, and like leave the cookie. So every once in a while, you'll find on the table just Oreo cookie part. And I'm like, ugh, who wants to pick that up and eat it, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe. We'll pray for you. But anyway, I want you to think of this sermon as like taking out that middle and then taking another Oreo and taking out that middle and then smashing it together. So what you're gonna get is on the front end and the back end, the good stuff, and in the middle is all the boring stuff that I have to go through, right? Okay, not exactly, but I'm gonna do this opposite. Normally, I try to wait to the end of the message to do like this big aha reveal moment. It's like, oh, we didn't see that coming, right? That's my goal. Well, that's not today. I'm gonna tell you exactly where we're going before we get there, and here it is, ready? The story of the Bible points us to Jesus. That's everything, everything. So if you're visiting with us today, you may not understand why we're so concerned with the Bible or so consumed with this name of Jesus. It's because everything points to him. He is everything. Everything is from him and for him and by him and to him. He is everything. He is everything. And he's alive and he's well and he's leading and he's here with us today. So let me show it to you. So after Jesus dies on the cross and he raises from the dead, he's walking with some of his disciples, but they don't understand. They don't recognize him. And the reason they don't recognize him is because dead people tend to stay dead. That, that's how this goes, right? I don't know if you know this or not. And so when Jesus starts walking with them, they don't, they don't understand who he is. And here's that conversation in Luke 24. When he had said this, he's talking to them. He showed them his hands and his feet, like, hey, I'm him. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, so now it's like, wait a minute, you're him, but they're like still struggling to grasp because it's like, you're alive? He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And I love this because basically what he's doing is, okay, I want you to see I'm not just a spiritual being. I am actually physically alive. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Can you imagine that? Like, what's he going to do with it? And he took it and he ate it (laughs) in their presence. Okay, maybe this is no big deal to you. Maybe it's because you forgot what this would be like to see a dead man eating lunch with you. All right, this is what's happening in their world. But then he said to them, This is what I told you while I was with you. 
everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. Now, the Hebrew word for this would be the Torah. The Greek word would be the Pentateuch. It stands for five, I think it's five teachings, five tukes. I think a tuke is a teaching. Uh, five, the five books, the five books. If you don't know your Bible, that would be the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So we're studying the book of Exodus. That's the second one. So in other words, everything written about me in the book we're studying. Now this book came about from now, 2,500 or so years ago or whatever, was the story of the Exodus. He also goes on, he says the prophets and the Psalms. All of these things, everything basically in the Old Testament was pointing us to Jesus. In fact, they still didn't get it. So the very next verse says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. It takes an opening of your mind by God in order for you to understand what we're about to do today. So let's just stop and ask God to open our minds real quick. Ready? Heavenly Father, we don't want to rush into your word and just assume for one minute that we can understand everything. I, humbly, God, I, I don't even understand everything. I've studied it a lot. I'm still struggling to understand it all. But God, for this moment, for the things we're going to talk about in Exodus, would you just open our minds so that we could begin to see and understand who you are, that we could understand what it means to be your children, dearly loved by you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. Now, getting into the book of Exodus, I want to do one more piece of yummy white filling for you before we get there. Because this whole series is looking at like hard times in our lives, okay? And so today, I want you to focus on this one truth, and then we're going to see it throughout the story of Exodus, and then we're going to come back to Jesus in the end. So here we go. We thrive in hard times by fixing our eyes on Jesus. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews, which is really going through the entire Old Testament and showing you how Jesus is in everything, that's the entire book of Hebrews, he says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We do this, we make it through hard times, by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Some translations say the author and perfecter. Authors, the writer, and then perfecter, it doesn't matter, it's the same. The whole idea is Jesus initiates and perfects our faith. He's the beginning and the end of our faith, but he's also the middle too. So really, imagine an Oreo with three white creamy fillings. That's your life with Jesus. He's the beginning, he's the middle, he's the end, he's all of it. That's him. And then he goes on, he says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. This is critical to understand where we're going to be in Exodus today because you have to understand that things got really hard and painful for Jesus before they got better. And that's the root of today's message in the book of Exodus. So we're going to go now. If you have a book of Exodus you want to open up, you can. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Here's where we left off last week. Last week, we looked at Moses talking to a bush that was burning but not on fire. And it's talking back. And God is in the bush. Now, I want to give you a little, little thing and it's gonna point us to the Trinity. And if you've ever heard of the Trinity and you've got lots of questions, me too. So we're not gonna have time to dig into it. That's not the focus of today, but I want you to get this. Throughout the Old Testament, there is something called the angel of the Lord. And sometimes there are angels who are not the angel of the Lord, they are angels. And they come and they speak on God's behalf. But every once in a while, throughout the Old Testament, we see something called the angel of the Lord. And it's very confusing because we see the angel of the Lord and he speaks as if he's God. In the burning bush, there are verses here in chapters four and five where 
Yahweh speaks. That's God who gives us his name, Yahweh. And then there's passages where it says, and the angel spoke. Well, which is it? Is it the angel, Lord, or is it Yahweh? And it's made us wonder for a long time. This is why Bible scholars call this Jesus. That Jesus has actually shown up in this moment to speak to Moses. There was most likely Jesus that Moses met with on top of the mountain. It was most likely Jesus who was the cloud by day and the fire by night. It was Jesus when he struck the rock and the water came out. It was Jesus, it was Jesus, it was Jesus. And if you start to look for Jesus, you'll see Jesus all over the place throughout the Old Testament. So Moses comes into this moment and he's having this conversation with the bushes burning that's not on fire. And God tells him, I have seen the cries of my people. I have heard their pain and suffering. If you don't remember that story, basically the Israelites are in captivity now in Egypt. And the Pharaoh is afraid because they're getting bigger in number because God is blessing. And so he's making their work harder. And when then that didn't slow them down from growing, he said, I want you to kill the boys as they're born. And when then that didn't work because the midwives wouldn't do it, now Pharaoh is getting frustrated. He just keeps trying to make it worse and worse. And God's like, I have heard, I have seen. Now, Moses, I want you to go. You're going to be the hero and I want you to go. But Moses isn't really the hero. This is a God story. It's not a Moses story. So let's pick up at Exodus chapter four, verse eight. And what we're going to see here is the Lord said to Moses, if they do not believe you when you go and they're not convinced by the first miraculous sign, they will be convinced by the second sign. Oh, and if they don't believe you or listen to you, even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And when you do, the water from the Nile will turn to blood on the ground. In the same way that I did one, two, skip a few Trinity, I'm gonna do one, two, skip a few miracles. Ready? And you're gonna be like, wait, I, wait, I got questions. It says in a class. We don't have time for that. All right, here we go. Miracles throughout the Bible point us to the activity of God. That's the purpose of a miracle. A miracle is not just to be something that I can just ask for and God is obligated to do something on my behalf anytime. Miracles point to the activity of God. This is why Jesus in the New Testament, when he's performing miracles, he says, if you won't believe in me based off my teachings, at least believe in the signs that you see. Signs is another word that's synonymous with miracles. And what we see today is a lot of times where churches are not established. One of my friends in Peru tells me stories of missionaries who are in the middle of the bush in the mountains, in the Andes Mountains in Peru. And that when they're up there, sometimes miraculous things happen. And there are no churches established there. What we tend to see, and I don't know what to make of this, is when there aren't churches established, we see a ton of miracles. When the churches get established, it's like the miracles tend to go away and the Holy Spirit moves to another area where it's doing a new thing. And the miracles establish as signs for the church. But the church itself is a miracle. That you could have all these different nationalities and all these different people with all their educations and wealth and backgrounds, and some of them are Bengals fans and some of them are Rams fans. Can you imagine such a thing? And they all get together and they love each other and they serve each other. That is a miracle. You can't even get together with your family at Christmas time without fighting. This is a miracle. That wasn't as funny as I told you it would be. I was a little too close. Okay, all right. So this is powerful because God is saying you're going to do some signs. And they'll believe the signs. And Moses saying to us, what if they don't believe the signs? In fact, if you jump down to verse 29, what we see is this. Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses. And Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down in worship. This is a glorious moment. This is an awesome moment. 
Because when they see the miracles, they believe in the message. But we got a problem we're about to run into. Not everybody is going to feel the same way. So the way this worked is Moses and Aaron first went to the Israelites. Why both of them? Well, if you go back and read chapters four or five, Moses is like, God, I can't go. Send somebody else. God's like, nope, you, you're the one I'm sending. No, 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 I'm not, I, mean, I don't speak no good. And he's like, yeah, I know. We'll send Aaron. That's the short version of the story. Aaron will go. He'll be your mouthpiece. You'll tell Aaron what to say. He'll say it. So Moses goes. He tells Aaron. Aaron tells the people. But first they go to the elders of the Israelites, the leaders of the Israelites. And they're so excited. God has been listening to our prayers. Yes. Miracles. Yes. Moses is like, all right, let's go to Pharaoh now. And he walks in. Pharaoh's not so happy. Pharaoh doesn't believe the signs. In fact, it says in chapter five or six, that same day, Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and Israelite foremen. Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. Then he says, they are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let's go offer sacrifices to our God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. And now what we see is that the path to freedom doesn't look like anybody had hoped it would look. Sometimes, when you follow Jesus, things get harder before they get better. And it's a truth that none of us want to embrace. You remember the day you gave your life to Jesus, if that's your story already? You raised your hand, you celebrated, you worshiped. Do you remember the last time you went to a worship night, perhaps, or a concert? And they were singing songs about Jesus and you were so excited. Remember last time, perhaps you sat in this room and somebody on this stage gave a message and you were so excited, so pumped. Yes, freedom, it's mine. The life I've always wanted, it's here. But then instead of getting that, things got harder and things got worse. That's exactly what this is going to be like. Pharaoh did not get excited about the miracles. He did not believe the signs. He did not soften his heart. And so he made it worse. So not only in the previous chapters, I think it was chapter two and three, not only did he say, you're now going to have to work harder and produce more, more than you were capable of producing, produce it anyway. Now you got to do it without us even giving you the straw. You go find your own straw. How are we supposed to find our own straw and produce the same amount of work? We can't even get the work done now as it is. I don't care. Perhaps now you'll shut up about going to see this God of yours. There's a book, highly recommend the book. If this message touches you in any way, buy this book. It's called Redemption by a guy named Mike Wilkerson. And I'm gonna steal a couple quotes of his throughout this. I think he does a great job of taking us through the book of Exodus. It's not a commentary verse by verse. It's more like conceptually what's happening. And he says this, so what do you do when your hopes are dashed? When your faith is challenged by a devastating turn of events? How do you feel? Do you cry out to God for rescue? Do you continue to trust his promises of redemption? Or do you make a deal with God? Painting a picture of redemption that you can tolerate. Saying, well, God, as long as it looks like this, I'll follow you. And this is what a lot of us do with God. We want to envision some sort of path towards redemption, some sort of path towards freedom that doesn't equal the pain and the heartache that comes with it. 
But God is a good God. He knows exactly how to set us free. It's really an issue of trust. That's why Mike goes on. He says, do you wander from God? Excuse me. Do you wander from God in search of comfort and refuge elsewhere? Perhaps even back to the very things that have enslaved you? Remember, in the Israelite story, multiple times throughout the Old Testament, not just in the book of Exodus, we are told that they start to cry out, oh, remember how good we had it in Egypt? How good you had it in Egypt? You had back-breaking work you couldn't finish. Then he took the straw away. You literally couldn't succeed it. You couldn't finish it. You couldn't, couldn't like, thrive in it. So he beat, your, beat you and your leaders and still made you do the work. He had your babies killed. Which part of Egypt was good? None of it. But when we're comfortable with something, we hang on to it long after we should have let it go. And then he says, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope is a funny thing in the Bible. Because when we use the word hope, we mean something like, man, I sure hope the Bengals finally win a Super Bowl, right? As a Browns fan, I get it. That's what we mean when we say the word hope. But that's not the way the Bible um, shows or illustrates the word hope for us. So here we just see, now faith is the assurance. The assurance of things hoped for. There's this connection between my confidence, my faith, that everything that God has promised me is going to come. And that's what the Bible calls hope. It's a confidence that God is who God says he is. God will do everything God says he will do when he's ready to do it. And this, it says, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, when I'm in the middle of it and things seem to be getting harder and more painful and not better, that I'm holding on hope. I'm not giving up the fact that God's story isn't done yet that he's yet to write the end of it. And no matter where I am, even if I can't see the path forward, which is where the Israelites are, I know somehow he's going to redeem this and do everything that he has promised me that he would do. Let's come back to Exodus for a minute. So what happens is these four men go to Pharaoh. And they're like, look, this isn't our fault. Moses and Aaron are the problem. And it says in verse 19, when the Israelite foreman could see that they were in serious trouble when they were told, you must not reduce the number of bricks you make each day. As they left Pharaoh's court, they confronted Moses and Aaron who were waiting outside for them. This is a bad day. So they go to plead their case and Pharaoh says, no, no, you will not go worship your God. In fact, you'll work harder. And they go by and there's Moses and Aaron standing outside. And the foreman said to them, it says, May the Lord judge and punish you for making a stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You put a sword into their hands, an excuse to kill us. And this becomes the normative pattern for the Israelites. That in their pain, in their suffering, they groan in the wrong way. They cry out in anger and in anguish. Everybody here reads their story and goes, I totally get why you're sad and upset and depressed. I get it. But they're crying out in the wrong way. But what we're about to see is Moses is different. And Moses is different in two significant ways. Let's read it and then I'll tell you. Number one, then Moses, it says, went back to the Lord and protested. Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? 
Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people. And you have done nothing to rescue them. And two really important things are seen here in Moses. Number one, when things got worse, who feels responsible? Moses does. But Moses doesn't groan against God. Moses groans to God. And that's a huge, important distinction to make. Moses doesn't just complain. He doesn't just vent his frustrations. He doesn't just get angry. He gets on his knees and he actually goes to God. He says, remember, you sent me. You promised you were gonna do something. So what are you waiting for? Do it. And in your pain, please do not just shake a fist at heaven, but open your mouth. And I promise you, God puts his big boy pants on every single day. He could take it. One prophet, Jeremiah, is called the cursing prophet because he gets really close to cursing God multiple, multiple times. He doesn't, but he gets really close because he's angry and he's hurt and he's frustrated and I don't understand. In fact, he wrote a whole book called Lamentations because he's lamenting the way things are going. But the other, I told you there were two things we got to notice here. The other thing is, remember the cookie, the Oreo cookie? This is the good stuff. I, 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 snuck, I snuck some in the middle. So like we got like cream, cookie, cream, cookie, cream. I'm making up my own Oreo here. I think Oreo ought to call me. We can make something of this, all right? But this is really important because what Moses is doing here is he's being Jesus to the people. Think about this for a minute. When the people are suffering, who's going to God on their behalf? Moses which is exactly what Jesus did. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the way you're to picture that then is Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, he's got one hand outstretched to God and another hand outstretched to us. And he's standing in the gap and he's pleading our case. So he says to God, the father, you can love them. You can serve them. You can care for them because I'm in the middle bridging the gap between you. And this is what Moses is doing. But as you read the book of Exodus, Moses does this over and over and over again. In fact, at one time, God gets so angry and so upset. He's like, I'm done with these people. You go on your own. And Moses goes, whoa, wait a minute. Where are we going to go without you? If you don't go with us, we aren't going anywhere. But Moses is standing in the gap and saying, God, for your name, for your sake, do not forsake your people. Do not forget them. I know they are stubborn. I know they are hard-hearted. But please, for your glory, do not forget them. And your mercy, spare them. And God relents and he gives them grace. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. Except Moses is also a goober. I don't know if that, that's Hebrew, I think. I don't know. Maybe it's Yiddish. I don't know. M Moses kills a man. And Moses strikes a rock when God told him to talk to a rock. And Moses gets angry and Moses loses his temper and Moses doesn't always do the things he's supposed to do. So when you read the book of Exodus over and over and over again, you go, man, we need a savior like Moses, but less human. We need a savior like Moses, but better, gooder. Like we need one that actually succeeds to obey God and follow God in every single way. And we do. His name is Jesus. All right. And come back now to this quote I love from Mike Wilkerson in the book Redemption. He says, look, it's all about weighing the evidence. 
we weigh the evidence of God's character, promises, and track record against our present circumstances that we face or our fears of what might happen to hold our picture of redemption out to God and we say, save me like this, God. It doesn't require nearly as much faith as saying, I know you're good. Save me like you want to. And that's an important distinction from us all because when hard times come, and especially, by the way, when hard times come after your profession of faith, after you've given God your heart, when things get hard and you're like, God, where are you? Why are they getting worse? I thought you loved me. I thought you wanted to free me. I don't understand God. In that moment, to still be able to say, I don't need to be in control right now. I just have to trust you. So Mike says, so we stand at a crossroads and here's our dilemma. God is unseen while our present circumstances stare us in the face and our fears are palpable. Here's the problem that I have is um, I've got to cover six more chapters in about 12 minutes. I'm gonna do it, but I gotta go fast. So I don't wanna rush past this moment, but I gotta move quickly because whatever you're going through, it could be tension in your marriage, or a wayward child, or a broken relationship with a parent, or an enemy you feel like at work, or it could be a medical diagnosis, and you just wonder, God, are you there? Do you even tuning into my life anymore? And what we see in the story of Exodus is things sometimes get harder before they get better. And in Exodus chapter six, now God is responding to Moses' prayer on behalf of the people, and it says, then the Lord told Moses, now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave his land. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. I said, this is where you ought to be like shaking. Like that scene in Lion King, Mufasa. You're like, ooh, say it again. Yeah, so good. But here's why it's good. I, I, we, we got these Exodus devotions going on. We're, we're challenging you. Read a chapter a day in Exodus and watch this five-minute devotion. So good. And this text was mine. And so forgive me for saying the same thing twice if you watch that. But I'll, Mufasa, I'm gonna say it again. All right, so, so good. Because what, what God is saying to, to, to Moses is, remember, I've already told you this. I, was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not dead. They're very much alive, Moses. They just aren't here anymore. You can't see them. And I faithfully took care of them. I provided for them. They looked around at the powers around them. At one point, Abraham gives up his own wife to one of those kings, twice actually, says, here, you can take her. By the way, Isaac does the same thing. Like, here, take her. And God's like, no, 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 no. No, that's not how the story's gonna go. You're afraid, Abraham, but I will reveal myself as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. I will take care of you. I will fulfill my promises. It's not gonna go like you think, but I am faithful. But Moses, this is different. I haven't changed I was still God Almighty to them. I'm still God Almighty for you, but I, Yahweh, you were gonna know me by name. You're gonna intimately have a relationship with me. You're gonna call on my name and things are gonna happen, Moses. I am paying attention. We are going through this together. Never forget when you're going through this, we are going through this together. And then he goes on, he says, you can be sure. I have heard the groans of the people of Israel 
who are now slaves of the Egyptians. And I am well aware of my covenant with them. Like Moses, thank you for reminding me. I didn't need your help, but thank you. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. Somebody in the room should have gone, woo, or something, right? Like, thank you. This phrase gets repeated throughout the Old Testament in, in a different way. It sounds something like this, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In fact, Chris Tomlin took a psalm that says this. You may know the song, right? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Your love endures forever. That phrase is repeated over and over and over again throughout the Bible because they are looking back at the Exodus story and saying, remember when God's mighty hand did all those miracles? Remember with an outstretched arm when God protected us and kept us close? A mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember when he did those things? Over and over and over. In fact, at one point in the Old Testament, God looks at the Israelites and he says, are my arms too small? Do you think I got T-Rex arms? Have you lost hope? Have you, do you suddenly think that the arms that expand the entire universe are suddenly not big enough to reach down and wrap around you and hold you close and take care of whatever it is you're going through? Have you lost sight of how big I am? Because you're going to know the bigness and the breadth as well as the intimate holding of Yahweh. And he goes on, he says, I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know, then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord you can count on my name. I've never failed you. It might've taken a long time. Remember, we're 500 plus years since that first conversation with Abraham. It's taken a long time to get to where we are. I don't always do things at the speed you want. I don't always do things in the way you want, but I am the Lord. And I keep every single one of my promises. Not one of them will fail you. And what happens next is what we call the 10 plagues. And the same way that I did one, two, skip a few on the Trinity and one, two, skip a few on miracles, I'm gonna do one, two, skip a few on the 10 plagues. But here's a little graphic to help you at least kind of see what the 10 plagues look like. And I'm gonna guess it was way scarier than this, all right? But we go from blood in the Nile to frogs all over the place to lice or nasty, depending on how you translate that, to flies everywhere, to pestilence, to boils, to hail of fire, to locusts, to darkness. And there's something I want you to get, two things I want you to get out of all these plagues. Seriously, if you start reading every day a chapter, you'll get to there and you hear the list and here's two things I want you to get. Number one, each of these is God going toe to toe with the false gods of Egypt. I'm probably saying this wrong, but I think it's Hapi, H-A-P-I. He's the God of the Nile. When I say God, I mean little G here. The Egyptians worshiped him as such. And they believe that he is the one who brought the, the Nile in its, in its springtime with the rain coming down and he provided for them and life came out of the Nile and the Nile was the center of agriculture. That's how they watered all the crops. It took care of all their animals. The Nile is critical for success for the Egyptians. And so they prayed to the God Hopi. And the very first plague is God going, nah, he ain't got nothing. I got it. So he makes the whole thing turn to blood. Well, you can't really drink or water your crops with blood. 
We're not just talking like it turned red. This is not like the, whatever, the algae bloom in Florida. That's what people have proposed that. No, people understood what blood looked like. They'd seen people bleed before. This was blood. And part of the reason God did that with each of these is he's going toe-to-toe and saying, you wanna worship that guy? He ain't got nothing. You wanna worship that guy? He ain't got nothing. Moses' guy, he's got all of it. The second thing you need to hang on to is, and I don't have the order memorized, but in each of these, I think of the first one, Moses says, no. And then with the frogs, he says, I think it's with the frogs, he says, okay, no, I changed my mind. And he does this over and over again. He says, yeah, okay, no, I changed my mind. No, okay, yeah, I changed my mind. No, and he does this over and over and over and over and over until we get to the 10th one. And what you need to take away from that, one of those daily devotions, we wrestled with the question, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And it's a great question. And in the same way I did one, two, skip a few with the Trinity and with miracles and with the plagues, I'm gonna do one, two, skip a few with that question. I'm gonna leave you simply with this. Don't be Pharaoh. Don't make promises to God you don't follow through on. Don't harden your heart. Look at what God is doing and respond. We get to the 10th plague, and in Exodus 11, verse five, it says, all the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt, from the oldest son of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has heard before or will ever hear again. And in the last service, I said, if you were the firstborn in your family, would you just raise your hand? And everybody, firstborn, raised their hands. And I said, my sister was the firstborn in my family, so ha, 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 and everybody laughed. And then somebody came in the afterwards and said, it says firstborn sons. And I went, somebody had to represent the livestock. I'm just saying, (laughs) if you're watching, Jen, I love you. Okay, but seriously, let's see this. Okay, I'll change it up. It was just supposed to be an illustration, but would all the firstborn sons in your family raise your hand? Look around the room for a second. It's a lot. I don't know how many kids the average Egyptian had, maybe 10, maybe five, I don't know. Probably more than two, which is probably where we sit in America today. That's a lot of dead people. But God says something even harder, and he says in verse, the next verse, but among the Israelites, it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And there's something important for us to stop and talk about right here. What happens next is God told Moses and Aaron to tell the Israelites, tonight an angel of death is gonna come through. This angel's gonna come through. And um, every home he finds, the blood of a perfect innocent lamb and the blood is put over the doorway. I'm gonna pass over that door and go to the next house. No one in that home will die or their animals. So when he comes to Egypt, some of the Egyptians were in relationship with the Israelites and they're watching this and like, something is different about this God. But the majority of Egypt didn't. And so when he came to those homes, the firstborn, be them parents or child or animal, son dies including Pharaoh's own son. And it's easy for us to say, well, of course, look what that evil person did. They got, that's justice. They got what they deserved. But did they? 
Are you telling me that the average Egyptian in the land deserved that because Pharaoh was an idiot? This would be like, let's just imagine that we've ever had a president that you didn't agree with. And they made decisions you didn't agree with. And God said, I'm gonna hold them accountable and now everybody in here is gonna pay for that. Would that be fair? Would that be just? But the bigger problem is we tend to think that the Israelites weren't also sinners. But these are the same Israelites in just a couple chapters. They're gonna long to come back and worship the gods in Egypt again and be a slave in Egypt again. They're gonna miss all that stuff. So don't think for one minute that the, the Israelites are better than the Egyptians. It's not about that. God is doing something that specifically points us to Jesus. And we see it both in what happens in Egypt and what happens in Israel. Don't miss that point. If the firstborn son dies in Egypt and that satisfies the issue for God, when Jesus comes and we are told over and over and over again in the New Testament that he is our older brother, do you see the connection? That's not just language. It's language that points to the Exodus story and says in the same way that the oldest died in Egypt, Jesus, our brother, our firstborn, he also died for us. And that gives us, yeah, 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 clap for God, not for me. That gives us the freedom, the freedom to say, wow, I'm not better than anybody else. It's that God is doing something that will point me to Jesus. There's a reason when Jesus shows up, he keeps making one statement over and over and over again. He says, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the door. I am, I am. And the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they know exactly what he's saying. They pick up stones to kill him and they go, blasphemy. Why is it blasphemy? Because Yahweh means I am. Jesus is saying, I am. I'm God. I'm the one. I was the one in the bush. I'm the one who led I'm the one who freed. But not only that, he is the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, 1 Peter says, 1 Peter 1, verse 18, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. And in case you didn't catch it, when the Israelites took that lamb, innocent, perfect lamb, and they killed it, and they took the blood, and they put it over the doorpost, and they no longer died that night, what Peter's trying to tell us is, that's Jesus. That lamb was always pointing to Jesus. So every year when the Israelites gathered together and they celebrated Passover and they broke the bread and they took the juice and they went, you remember? You remember? Don't forget. Don't remember what God did with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? They didn't even know they were celebrating Jesus. And then Jesus came and he showed us. And I just want to stop for a minute because I don't know where you are. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you've done or what's been done to you. Oppression comes in many different forms. But when it says before the world began, 
John chapter one tells us Jesus created everything that's ever existed. What I like to picture is Jesus forming these distant planets. And he comes to earth and he's making mountains pop up and rivers with his fingers. And then he's bringing Adam and Eve about. And through it all, he knows where the story's going. Jesus' death was not like a, oops, I didn't see that one coming. Before the world began, he was already crucified, slain as the innocent, perfect, spotless lamb. Well, how can that be? Because the creator is the initiator, the perfecter, the savior. It's all from him, for him, by him. All of our lives is to point to him so that you'll draw near to the mighty hand and the outstretched arm, the Yahweh, the I am, the one who loves you more than you ever dare dream, whether it's your best day or your worst day. And he wants a relationship with you. Sometimes things have to get harder before they get better. Will you still trust in him? I don't know where you are right now, but... I need to invite you into that story. If you have never united with Christ in baptism, do you know what we're doing? We're going into the waters and we're washing away everything we've done and everything everybody's done to us and we come out alive, transformed. We say, I'm starting new and God gives us the spirit and it's the beginning of a new relationship with God. If you've never been united with Christ in baptism and you're ready today, we're ready. I just raise your hand right now we will come to you. We'll explain this whole thing called baptism of faith. I see some hands going up. Praise Jesus. Thank you. We got some Connect team members that are gonna come to you and talk with you and they're gonna give you a card. The rest of us are gonna move into communion. I want you to take out your communion cup because you can't go here without going there, right? Did you know that Jesus was crucified at Passover? Huh, almost like it was on purpose. It was, just didn't catch the sarcasm. The reason that's powerful is, tell me, who is smart enough to organize their own crucifixion? You're smart enough to make the Romans come arrest you. You're smart enough to make one of the 12 betray you for 30 pieces of silver. You're smart enough to make them try you and eventually put you on a cross at the same hour that the lamb would have been slain in Israel. You're smart enough to pull all that off. That's a lot to pull all that off. Unless you're God. You want to make a point. Jesus says in Matthew 26, it says, as they were eating, you know what they're eating? The Passover meal. Jesus took some bread from the meal and he blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples. He said, take this and eat it for this is my body. So together, let's just take the bread and remember that Jesus is our perfect lamb of God. He took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Together, let us remember what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. Oh 
oh Jesus, the initiator and perfecter of our faith. We need you as much today as ever. But God, uh, life continues to bring to us these tests, these trials that we go through where we have to choose whether we're going to continue to trust you or not. God, please don't let us be like Pharaoh, hardening our heart each step of the way. Instead, God, let us, let us follow after you and to trust you. And God, anywhere there's a gap in our faith, would you help us in our unbelief? We really would believe that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, you saved Israel and you can and will save us too. We love you, Father. And the great and powerful name of the I am, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray.